Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 5, beginning with verse 17? John chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But he, meaning Jesus, answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater things than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This is the word of the Lord. When I was serving up in Wisconsin, I was in churches that were in the middle of uh, Dairyland. I had two churches, a yoke parish. They shared a pastor. That was me. And there was a picture that I often saw on the walls of homes there in that farmland. Two men are walking from the barn to the house, and they're both dressed the same. They both have bib overalls on. They both wear the same ball cap. They both have a similar contented look on their face. Both of them are striding with visible purpose. They're the spitting image of each other. And the final detail is one of them is carrying a bucket. And the one that's carrying the bucket is perhaps three feet tall, maybe three years old. And so the pail dwarfs him. The work is too hard for him, but you should see his face. It is proud proud, proud. And for that matter, the father's face is proud also. It's father and son, and they're sharing work, and they're very, very proud of one another. And this is heavenly. Now, when I was growing up, I had a dad who used to share his work with his children. It wasn't carrying a pail from the barn to the house. With my father, he was a writer and a speaker and a preacher. And so typically his work was writing notes for what he would say when he was preaching, an article, a book. And it was typical for him to be sitting in the easy chair in the living room, and he'd been writing. He had his, uh, if you look at the picture in my office, you'll see a yellow legal pad and his hand up to his shoulder, and he has his fountain pen in his hand. You just can't see it in the picture. And, and that, was, that was my dad. He'd be sitting there with a legal pad and his fountain pen, and he'd write. And when he got done writing, he would call us over to the chair, and he'd read to us what he'd been written. I remember one, uh, the last summer vacation 
Well, no, it wasn't the last one. But we were in Cape May, New Jersey, and one evening he said, I want to read you all something. And he read us a book he'd written. And uh, so he would read to us, and when he got done reading, he'd say, what do you think? And we'd tell him what we thought. And often we would say, well, I think you should say this, or I don't think you should say that, or did you think about this? And the thing about my dad was he'd share his work with us, so when he got done reading it to us and he got our input, then he would change what he had written. And so almost never was there anything that he did that wasn't the, uh, uh, the product of not just him, but of his children. My father shared his work with his sons. And so his work was our work, and so his glory was our glory. It's very interesting um, to me, maybe not to you, but it's very interesting that the glory of my father was when he was attacked. It was typical for him to get done reading his, writing his articles, and then he'd send them off, they'd get published, and then people would just be furious with him. And they'd write these letters to the editor, and even if they didn't, the nice thing about a hard print publication is you pick and choose what letters to the editor get printed. You know, I always tell people that look down their noses at blogs, that blogs are much more accountable than any print publication. Because in a blog, within seconds, somebody can say, you're an idiot and you're unspiritual too. Whereas when it comes to a magazine, they send a letter to the editor in and the editor might choose to never publish it, right? But all of those letters came to dad because he had a policy that he wanted to see the letters. So they'd send them out to him. My dad would read them to us. Sometimes they were in the magazine, sometimes they were just hard copy. And the glory of dad was when he was standing for the word of God and he would get attacked. And we would take such pride in our father at that point. And that's how I grew up. Now, that explains a lot about me, doesn't it? (laughs) And so his glory would be our glory. His work was our work. I've noticed that this is rare in Christian families for fathers to share their work with their sons. Much more mothers and daughters. And that's partly because mothers and daughters, the mother's in the kitchen at a counter and it's easy for the daughter to sidle up and say, you know, can I help with that? Whereas, how do you sidle up to your father? You know, if my father had not asked us to come over and listen, then we would never have been able to help him with his work. You know, you can't sit down and say, can I help dad? Well, yeah, here's another fountain pen. Have at it, kid. You know, doesn't work, right? You know, you're a doctor, you're working a factory, you can't have your kids come in and stand next to you and help you with your work, right? So, here's the truth on Father's Day. God made fathers and sons to live in love and submission with each other. And the son who loves his father naturally wants to do his father's work. And the sharing in the work makes the father proud and it makes the son proud. And it's not a very complicated truth, is it? So let me say it again. God made fathers and sons to live in love and submission. And the son who loves his father naturally does his father's work which makes his fathers proud, which makes the son proud. 
You know how sometimes I refer to the, to the, to the modern obsession of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal? And you feel the tension this morning. Oh, this is such a sex-specific sermon. You know, don't talk about fathers and sons. Can't you talk about daughters and fathers? Can't you talk about... And I say, well, I am talking about daughters. But I'm talking about daughters. You have to make the application by talking about fathers and sons. And this is normal. This is good. This is what God intends. Now, when I was growing up, this is something I experienced, but I didn't see this same theme in the relationship between God the Father and his son until about 10 years ago. I can't remember what it was that made me see it first, but one day I noticed these statements in the Gospel of John. We just read them. Verse 17, again, Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And verse 19b and 20, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Now, people, this is just like yawn normal. And yet we're speaking here about God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. And when I read that 10 years ago, it hit me. God is Jesus' father. And so Jesus wants to please him. Jesus loves his father. God the Father loves his only begotten son. The son live to do his father's work. The father showed the son his work, and the son was filled with joy to share it. Now, many of you are probably sitting there thinking, Do you think you said something, Tim? It's like as obvious as the nose... On the front or end of your face? I don't know which it is. This thing. That's like how, no, how completely obvious it is. What took you so long, Tim? Hadn't you ever read the Gospel of John? Didn't you know the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And honestly, I don't know what took me so long. As usual, I was careless with the Word of God. I did not read it and study it as I should. But I thank God, finally, I did see it. Like every truth and every word of Scripture, it is very, very powerful. In John 1.18, we read, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No one has seen God at any time. But there is one who is in the bosom of the Father. And through him, we see God. Who is that one? It's the only begotten Son. 
the son in whom he is well pleased. That's who he is. Now, what is the application of that? Well, let me stop for a second and and, and say one of the applications. If you desire to know God, but refuse to know him, the only way he has revealed himself, which is through his son. If you refuse to know him through the method he has chosen to reveal himself to you, which is through Jesus Christ, then you refuse to know God. If you refuse to know Jesus Christ... If you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, you have refused to know God because God has revealed himself. You remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders? He said, no, 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 no. If you reject me, you reject God. Don't tell me that you accept God, but reject me. I am here because God sent me to reveal himself to you. I am God. I am the son of the father. I am the one that all of scripture is pointing to. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but none of us are here rejecting Jesus Christ. Um, And so what's the point of bringing this up with us? Well, here's the point for you. You know how you're always put under pressure to accept people who don't know God through Jesus Christ? As if they have just a slightly different path to God than you have? There's this relentless pressure that there are many ways to God... Only one is Jesus Christ. Are you with me? But that path to know God is God's revelation of himself. He commands all men to come to Jesus. So there is no other path to know God. The only one that reveals him to us is the one who is in the bosom of the Father. There is no path to God except through his Son, Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself through his Son. So people who reject the Son are are rejecting the Father. And you say, well, yeah, 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 that's why we're here. This is Christian worship. I say, okay. So when you live your life with people who reject the Son, what is your attitude about that rejection? How do you relate to them? What message do you give them? What warning do you give them? Now, we have a tendency to think all this stuff is just hypothetical and, and, and not really that important because <clears throat> it doesn't really have any connection with our lives. But here's the connection to your life. Bob here is a Jew. Do Jews need to repent and bow before Jesus Christ? Do Jews need to do that? And you're all saying, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Bob needed to do that, right? But are you aware that all over Christians are saying Jews don't need to come to Jesus, that they have another parallel agreement with God that bypasses Jesus? All over. Everywhere there are Christians saying that. Everywhere. Christians I grew up with at College Church in Wheaton. Where all the muckety mucks who are evangelicals go. 
those Christians are saying that. Now, why would people today say that Jews don't need to come to Jesus? Well, the answer is that after the Holocaust, everybody is saying that 2,000 years of the church have oppressed Jews. And that Hitler was the culmination of that oppression. And that if we're ever going to get beyond this perpetual persecution of Jews, we have to leave Christianity behind and give the Jews their own ethnic sensibilities on their own without ever shoving their nose in Jesus because Jesus to them symbolizes their persecution across 2,000 years. And so we have to be sensitive to their suffering And here's and 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 here's the deal. Is there any way for the Jew that you love to have his sins forgiven other than the blood of Jesus Christ? Is there any other way? Is there any other sacrifice that God has deemed worthy of sinful man and his redemption? Any other way? What about the blood of bulls? Hmm? How about chicken? The blood of chickens. How about very, very sophisticated intellectual pursuits? If you're a very good movie maker like Woody Allen, does that get you in? As long as you haven't done you-know-what to your daughter. Satan's very sophisticated. He's put us in a situation where we know that God is love and we know that the greatest of these is love and we know that Jews have suffered and so what we're all done, have happened to us is we're all cowed into not wanting to call Jews to Jesus because Christians have persecuted them. It's no love of a Jew, is it? It's no love of a Jew. The true anti-Semitism is to withhold the Messiah from the people of God. Right? Because then you don't love them. You're so concerned about your own peace and not being accused of being anti-Semitic and not committing ethnocide and genocide by evangelism that you withhold the bread of life, right? I was telling my brother this last week and my wife that um, I've read, it took me a couple days to do it, but I read this weird, the weirdest article I've ever read in my life. I mean... You know, you've ever been in one of those uh, fairs where they have that building that has those mirrors or maybe the Museum of Science and Industry and, and you look in the mirror and it shows you looking in the mirror and you know what I'm saying? And you're looking at the mirror, which is showing you the mirror looking at the mirror. And you know? It's so weird. Well, I read an article like that where there was a very, very orthodox, traditional Roman Catholic doing a review 
of a book by another Roman Catholic, right? And this book by this other Roman Catholic was about how Jews should not come to Jesus, that they don't need to come to Jesus, that God has another way for them to be saved than Jesus. All right? And so this traditional Roman Catholic was criticizing this book by this other Roman Catholic and saying, this is heresy. There is only one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. So a very traditional Roman Catholic, very orthodox, criticizing another Roman Catholic for writing a book saying that Jews have another parallel covenant and that they don't have to come through Jesus. Okay, now that doesn't sound like mirror weird, right? That just sounds wrong. Normal run-of-the-mill wrong, but I've withheld one little piece of information from you. And here's the piece of information. The one that wrote the book is the Pope. And so here you have an ultra-faithful to the Pope, Roman Catholic, reviewing a book by the Pope in which he says what this man says is heresy. Saying that the Jews don't have to come to Jesus. Now, I know the tension is unbearable right now, and so let me put you all out of your misery by reassuring you that the Pope, when he wrote this book called Jesus of Nazareth, did not write it under the name of the Pope. It's not Benedict. He signed it with John Ratzinger. Because he said he did not want to write this as the Pope, but rather as the man Ratzinger. And I just don't know how to think about that. I mean, on the one hand, I'm relieved. <laughs> and on the other hand, I'm not. <laughs> but I'll tell you, you want to you put yourself in a weird spot. Read a traditional Orthodox Roman Catholic reviewing a book where the man that writes it is not the Pope, but the man under or... Huh? Formally, yes, yes. Yes, the religious leader formerly known, currently known as the Pope, right? And calling it heresy. And listen, this is just one very tame iteration of the problem the Roman Catholic Church has had for 2,000 years or for 15, actually no, for 500 years since the Council of Trent. Which is, how do you deal with having that your Pope? He, he says the Jews don't need Jesus. How do you deal with that? Well, he didn't say it is the Pope. It's not ex cathedra. Well, then what in the world is he publishing it for? Thank goodness. And this guy, the author of the article, the review, actually says, thank goodness that it wasn't the Pope saying this because then, you know, the apparatus of the church would have to condemn him.
Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I stopped doing this, but when Mary Lee and I were growing up in Wheaton, there was this guy that used to work at the University of Chicago, and then he flipped, it, he flipped out. And you'd see him walking down the sidewalk in, in, in town all the time. And this is how he would walk. He would go, and then he'd stop and he'd go, Bruh! and then he'd keep watch, walking. So that's, yeah, that's my expression for something that just completely blows my brain. <laughs> you know. Now listen, people. Think about Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And God sent him. And he was obedient. He came. And as you watch Jesus' life, you just watch constantly him doing his father's work. This is just one place here we read where he healed a man and he was called on the carpet for healing him and the religious leaders were just up in arms because he healed him on the Sabbath. They were furious. And do you notice how conciliatory Jesus is when he responds? Peaceable, ironic, soft-spoken? Not at all. He's in their face. He says, look, I'm doing my father's work. In fact, I couldn't have done this unless I had seen my father working. I do the work my father. I'm about my father's. And then they're livid. Why? Well, now, no longer because he worked on the Sabbath. (laughs) He escalated it. What did he say? He made himself equal to God, calling God his father. So you're, you're scandalized by the work I did on the Lord's Day? Okay, fine. I and the Father are one. He's my Father. And now they're livid. And you see this all through Jesus' life. You see it again and again and again. If you have eyes to see Father and Son, you see constantly Jesus completely identifying with his Father. And it's drop-dead gorgeous. You know, we have... In the church today, a culture, and remember, culture is what you don't notice while you suck it in. It's like a baby at its mother's breast getting milk. It doesn't realize why it wants to drink. Culture is like that. It just comes to us, all right? And you look at the culture of the church today, and the church thinks in the Old Testament there was a nasty God the Father who whooped up on people, had no grace, no mercy, was only judgment and law. And then Jesus, thankfully, Jesus came along. And when Jesus came along, then we got a little of what we like, which is softness, gentleness, mercy, grace. But that's not at all what the Bible tells us about God the Father. Here's what it actually tells us about God the Father. It says this. It says, for Jesus so loved the world. But that's not what it tells us. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so who loved the world so much? God, God the Father. 
The Gospel of John explicitly reports that it's the love of God the Father that led him to send his only begotten Son to die. Jesus is not love to God's justice and wrath. God the Father is love sending his precious Son to do the work of redemption. The Son was born and lived and died because it was his Father's work, and he always does his Father's work. Jesus came to earth to obey his father by dying on the cross. This was the purpose of his taking on flesh, to die. God the Father loved the world so much that he gave, he sent his only begotten son. Now, watch this son as he puts his back to the work given him by his father. Watch this son as he puts his back to the work that his father has given him. First, as a young boy of 12, we see him in the temple discussing his father's word with the Jewish Bible scholars. He'd gone missing, and after looking all over for him, his father and mother, quote, found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, what kind of an impression did he make? Well, Luke 2.47 says this, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Already at this young age, almost 20 years before he began his public ministry, Jesus had a knowledge and understanding of Scripture that amazed the Bible teachers of the day, and they were no slouches in Bible scholarship. Of course, his mother Mary was not pleased that he had inconvenienced and worried them, and so she said to him, Luke 2, 48b, Son, Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And you look at Jesus' response. Mary had referred to Joseph and herself as your father and I, and Jesus responded with an almost rebuke. Jesus said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? My father's house. And speaking of his father's house, one of the more powerful testimonies to the bond of love between the father and son is found on the two separate occasions when Jesus threw the thieves out of the temple. In in John 2, beginning with verse 14, we read, And Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so zeal for his father's house consumed him. Now listen, if you saw a gang of thieves trashing your dad's house, Would you not clean them out? Would you not fight them? It's really that simple. And it was that simple for Jesus too. The religious leaders were presiding over the temple and turning it into a den of thieves. And so Jesus, it was his father's house, Jesus took a whip and cleaned them out. He yelled at them, he rebuked them, 
He whipped them. He turned over their tables and he sent their money flying. He shamed them. He was zealous for the honor of the house of his father. That it returned to what his father had made it to be, which was a house of prayer for all nations. And so Jesus was angry. He was righteously indignant. He was furious at the men who were trashing his father's house. Now, what does this tell us about the father and the son? Does the son identify with his father? Does he feel insults to his father as if they were insults to him? Does he defend his father's house? Now, some may not like Jesus' anger over the dishonor of his father there in the temple and is cleaning the den of thieves out. They may not like this used as a primary illustration of the son's love for his father. But, you know, sons are that way. You know, sons are that way. Always have been and always will be. We are men. And we are zealous for our father's honor. As men will be. And so we take whatever steps are necessary to defend his honor, including physical combat. Has it ever occurred to you that some of the thieves may have tried to stop Jesus? Do you think any of them punched him, hit him, kicked him? Do you think any of them tried to trip him? Do you think it mattered to Jesus? Nah. It didn't stop Jesus. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. And he didn't stop until the job was finished and the temple again was restored to what his father had made it to be, a house of prayer. Jesus was not a passive man waiting for the priests to do what they're supposed to do. He did not assuage his guilt with talk about proper authorities being called and being patient for the wheels of justice to turn. It was his father's house And the thieves were gone now. As Jesus made clear, it was not their house. It was not the religious leader's house. It was his father's house. Now, the Gospels don't simply record the son's loving obedience of his father. They also record the father's tender love for his obedient son. On two different occasions, the father announced his love and approval of his son. And once it was when John baptized Jesus, and the other was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we read that Mark records, where Mark records for us on the Mount of Transfiguration, that a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And and people, this is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. This is the son from whom all sonship gets its name. And my heart beats with joy when I read this. If only I may be such a son of my heavenly father. If only by the power of the Holy Spirit, I may be such an obedient son and he may be pleased to call me his beloved. 
At Jesus' baptism, we see the Holy Spirit confirming the Father's approval of the Son, all three members of the Trinity together, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove alighting on Jesus, and the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's so many testimonies in Scripture to the obedience of Jesus for his Father and his identification as his Father's Son. One of the testimonies comes from Jesus' enemies. When he's on the cross, we read that the religious leaders, uh, it's Matthew 27, beginning with verse 41, in the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Jesus was doing his Father's work on the cross, and at that point, they mocked him. They saw him being on that cross and dying as an indication that he wasn't really the Son of God. Was he the Son of God? Why was he on the cross? We're privileged to be granted a glimpse into the agony of that submission through the account we've been provided of his wrestling in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before this ridicule he endured by those mocking him. We read this account. Luke 22, beginning with verse 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying what? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And then the words that every father wants to hear from his son, yet not my will, but thine. Not my will, but yours be done. And then the Father, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Oh, the love and the submission of the Son of God to his father. How precious it is to us who are purchased by his blood. Had he not submitted, there would not be any hope at all for any man who has ever lived. Knowing the fullness of the suffering he was about to endure, Jesus submitted to his father's will. And for his part, Bound to his son by his son's perfect obedience, God the Father sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And then he watched as his son's suffering became worse and worse and worse. Until he was on the cross, he had endured all the mocking and scorn. He'd cried out in pain and terrible grief at his father's forsaking him. And then it is finished. And he died. 
Now, one application of the love of the Father for his obedient son is that we refuse to be anti-Semitic by withholding the Messiah from the Jews, right? It's as obvious as obvious can be. It is to love the Jews to lead them to Jesus. It is not to commit genocide. Without Christ, they are without hope eternally. Another application, obviously, is it would be perverse if you have been given a father, you have been given a son, and as a father, you exasperate your son, and as a son, you dishonor your father. It would be perverse if you did not share in the work of your father. Honor your father and mother that your life may be long in the land that the Lord your God will give you. But, you know... There's a much more central application of this. And that is, can you imagine if the only hope for all man across all history is the Lamb of God living in perfect obedience in submission to his Father and then pouring his blood out for the purchase of our souls. Can you imagine what that father's response would be to someone who knew the obedience of his son and the sacrifice of his son and spurned it? We don't like to think about this. But if you're that father and you see someone turn their back on that son, can you imagine what you will do with that person? Someone who's too proud to confess their sins under the cross and drink that son's blood? As a father, how would you treat that person? What would you do with him? You know, we're so caught up in thinking so highly of ourselves that we think that, you know, God's done everything he can do, and now it's up to you. No, 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 no. What Jesus said, and he knows the mind of his father, What Jesus said is, no man can come to him unless the Father draws him. And so we're not filled with our potential. We're filled with sin. And God has revealed that son to you. He's revealed here at this table, his body and his blood. He's revealed in the preaching of the word. He's revealed in scripture. He's revealed every single time you hear the name of Jesus. You're hearing the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins through the Lamb of God whose blood was shed. And so God commands you to believe in the Son. Do you know that's what Jesus said? In, uh, in John 6, 
uh, 28, we have a record of them asking Jesus this question. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? All right. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so the work that will please your heavenly father is for you to put your faith in the one he has sent, and that's Jesus Christ. And so one of the applications of this is that any man who is proud and refuses to confess his need for the precious blood of God's Son will be consumed by the wrath of God eternally. And there's not a father, there's not a son in this room who doesn't understand that. If Jesus was obedient, to death, even the death on the cross. And if God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, then those who refuse to bow the knee before that son will be consumed eternally. They will be cast into a bottomless pit and there will be no mercy. Their mercy will be forevermore proclaiming the judgment of God against those who have spurned his son. And really, if you think about Jesus' obedience, it's not hard to understand. If God has given us this treasure and we spurn it, we will be consumed. Your children will be consumed. Your father, your mother, your Jewish friend. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so you look at God and say, I am not a sinner and I don't need your son. Your son or your daughter says that to God. And the wrath of God will abide upon him forever. You know, it's very interesting. Right after Jesus says this, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent, what I just read to you. He then goes on and says that he is the bread of life. And it's in that text that he goes on and says that you have to eat his body and drink his blood. You remember that text? Remember that. And do you know that it was at that point, more than any other point in Jesus' ministry, it was at that point when everybody who was following him turned aside and left him. They were so scandalized that Jesus said, that we must eat his body and drink his blood. And it's also at that point that at the very end, you remember what happens? Jesus looks around and like nobody's left. And so he says to his disciples, you remember that? Are you going to leave me too? <laughs> oh, man. Sometimes I wish I was in Africa. 
because then I could preach the way I want to. <laughs> oh, man. You remember Peter? Oh, I love Peter. Remember what he did? Does anybody remember? Where else? Where are we going to go? You won't have the words of eternal life, but can you imagine being there at that moment? Everybody's left. Nobody's going to drink his blood. Nobody's going to eat his body. Nobody wants that bread of life. And then Jesus said, you're going to leave me too. Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And there he was, the son. And there the father was. And they're the ones wanting to share in the work. And what was their work? Their work was believing in the one that God had sent. So, if the elders would please come forward.